If someone were to ask you who you are, what would you say? How would you answer the question, who am I? What would you say defines you? Many today are going to try and answer that question by describing often what they do for a living. So I'm a teacher, I'm a lawyer, I'm an engineer, I'm a master electrician, a stay-at-home mom, I'm an analyst, whatever you may do for a living. They define themselves by their work because their work gives them a sense of worth. But more often within our culture today, identity is defined by looking inside yourself. It's defined by looking inside yourself. That it's up to you to discover and to determine your true self. And this way of thinking, our identity isn't something given to us, but rather it's something that's actually created by us. It's not something that we receive. It's something that we can actually go out and we can achieve. You discover your true self by following your heart. So the answer to the question, who are you, is, well, well, what are your desires and your hopes and your dreams? That will tell you who you are. And we love this form of individualism today, don't we? It gives us a sense of purpose that we're the masters of our fate who can rewrite the stars, as it's been said. That we will go somewhere, we will be somebody by achieving our hopes and dreams. But the sad reality of this understanding of identity is that it assumes that you know what you want, though your desires will often contradict themselves. It assumes you know that you, what you want, though your desires contradict themselves. Not only that, but what happens when the harsh realities of this life actually tear down those hopes and dreams? What happens when you actually get and achieve what you desire, but it leaves you more empty than when you first started out? In a recent Netflix documentary about the downfall of the famed Texas A&M quarterback Johnny Manziel, there's a point in that documentary, where Manziel describes his emptiness in having everything. Maybe you've seen this documentary, it recently came out. He says, I had every single thing that I could have ever wanted. You have money, you have fame, you're a first-round draft pick battling for a starting quarterback position. But when I got everything that I wanted, I think I was the most empty that I've ever felt inside. Following your heart can actually be quite heartless, can't it? When we think about identity this way, we fall into the trap of looking to the world to fulfill for us what can only be satisfied in Christ. We look horizontally rather than looking vertically. I love the way that Paul David Tripp talks about this. He gives a helpful analogy uh, about defining our identity horizontally, and he, he illustrates it by saying that doing so is often by is often done by looking like we're looking into a carnival mirror. You probably, you know what a carnival mirror is, right? You look into this mirror and your forehead is literally the size of your body. It looks ridiculous, right? You see somewhat, some resemblance of yourself in that mirror, but it's distorted. It's a distorted reality. This is what happens when we look for something in creation to define who we are, to create or to achieve an identity that can only be given by God. 
In our sermon text today, the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire around the years of 62 to 63 AD. Christians who are feeling the pressure of living in a culture that is not sympathetic with their values. It's not sympathetic with their beliefs. A culture that is breathing down their neck. Where following Christ doesn't bring with it cultural clout, it actually brings with it a great cultural cost to their very lives. Where being a Christian actually hurts one's status in society instead of helping it. So what message do you think these Christians need to hear about their identity? What message do they need to hear when their status in the world's eyes is that of a bigot or ignorant or of an outcast? What message do you think you would need to hear living in such times as them? Yet it's in this context of suffering that Peter actually reminds them of their status before God. That who we are is most fundamentally defined by who God says that I am. Peter begins his letter not with exhortation. Interestingly, he begins this letter with identification. Not exhortation, but identification. Because understanding who you are is absolutely fundamental to withstanding the trials that are going to come at you as you live as a Christian in a corrupt world. It's necessary to understand who you are. So if you would, turn with me to the letter of 1 Peter. We're beginning a new sermon series today in 1 Peter, which is going to take us up to Thanksgiving this fall. And Peter is writing this letter to encourage Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, that are enduring persecution for their faith. That's why he is writing this letter. And so instead of telling them to just integrate into the culture or necessarily to isolate themselves and withdraw from the culture, he actually encourages them to stand firm in what they believe. Now, where am I getting that? Look at chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 12. You get the purpose of why Peter is writing this letter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Peter says, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God, like everything that he has just proclaimed about this, this salvation of theirs. And then he says to them, stand firm in it. So Peter's answer to cultural hostility is not to throw off what you believe or to succumb to the pressure nor is it to seclude yourself from being affected by the pressure. Instead, our greatest witness is to stand firm in what we believe by actually aligning our lives to those beliefs. That's what we're going to see throughout this letter. That though the culture may change, the message and the mission of the church has not. It is the same ever since this first century letter. In this letter, it's been said that First Peter is a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. That's what we're looking at right here. A traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims like you and me whenever we face trials and hostility in this world. And in this letter, Peter is going to show us how to navigate a world at odds with God. And on this journey, he is going to instruct us on what threats that we need to watch out for. And he's going to remind us of the various aids that we have to assist us along the way. The journey is no doubt, it's going to be hard. 
but God has already supplied us with all that we need to make it to the end. And so as we make this journey through the letter, what we're going to see is this consistent theme, which I would say is really kind of the big theme of the letter itself, which I think is this, that the hope of salvation ought to fuel holy living in a hostile world. I think that's the big theme of 1 Peter. I think that's what we're going to see, is that the hope of salvation ought to fuel holy living in a hostile world. And the first place that Peter begins to make this argument in his introduction is with who we are, our identity. So let's read the introduction to the letter, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I think the main idea of this introduction that we gather from Peter right here is this, that God gives us a new identity that reshapes how we live in society. God gives us a new identity that reshapes how we live in society. I think that's really what's being communicated in this introduction. And in this introduction, Peter really identifies us as chosen exiles to describe who we are before God and who we are in the world. And that right there is going to form really our two points. Who we are before God and then who we are in the world. So point number one, who we are before God. Point number two, who we are in the world. We're going to break down this identity of chosen exiles that Peter declares over us in this text. But before we look at Peter's audience, I think in in these two points, I first want to look at Peter himself, this author. It says in verse one that Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So right here, Peter is showing us that he was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, which meant that he had authority to represent and to speak on behalf of Jesus, who has what? Who has all authority in heaven and on earth, right, that has been given to him. And so he stands as a representative of Jesus, speaking on Jesus' behalf. We also learn about Peter and his authority at the end of the letter in chapter 5, verse 1, if you want to flip to chapter 5 in verse 1. He says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder in witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. So right here, Peter is an elder. He's a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. But more importantly, he was a witness to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Peter's authority was special because he was an eyewitness to all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did. If there was anyone qualified to write this letter about the hope of glory in the face of suffering, it was Peter. It was Peter. As an apostle who witnessed Christ, who was commissioned by Christ, his words for the church are not just good advice. They are not mere opinion. They're binding for us as Christians. These words are the word of God. 
and what he says about who we are and what we are to do is who we are and what we're to do. They're binding for us as Christians today. But the question is, do you read the scriptures like that? Do you read the scriptures in this way? If not, inevitably we're like a hiker that is trying to hike the 2200 Appalachian Trail without a backpack, with water, with a map, with compass, with a tent. Right? We're not going to get very far. We're not going to make it to the end. We're going to be malnourished. And if we read these words as merely just good advice, we're going to be tempted to cave under the weight of cultural pressure. If these words are just opinion, then what lasting help do we have when suffering comes? But Peter gives us his status as an apostle so that we will actually receive this word as the definitive guide for our journey. Any other map that is given to us, especially from the world, is only going to take us off course. This is the guide. And the first thing that he says definitively about who we are before God is that we are chosen. So point number one, let's look at point number one, who we are before God. Like a typical Greco-Roman letter, Peter has stated that he is the author of the letter, and now he is addressing his audience. And though the structure is not uh, of this, this intro is not typical, or it is typical, the content of this introduction is not typical. Right out of the gate, he calls these Christians chosen. Right? Now, don't miss the drama of who is actually saying this. Peter is the one declaring that they are chosen. More than likely, the majority of these Christians that he's writing to are Gentiles, right? The places that he names right there in verse 1 are scattered throughout Gentile territory of Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. And isn't it interesting that Peter is the one who's writing these words about Gentile Christians? Is that not interesting? Right? If you remember, Peter was entrusted with the gospel to the Jews, the one who ate with Gentile Christians in Antioch and yet pulled back when Jewish Christians came from the church in Jerusalem. We read about that in Galatians where Paul calls him out for that. The one that the Lord chose to reveal the inclusion of the Gentiles on that housetop in Joppa and declared all foods clean as a symbol that God was bringing in the Gentiles by faith. And who witnessed the first convert in this early mission of the church? Peter with Cornelius. This Peter begins his letter by declaring that these believers are chosen. A word that was once described of Israel as God's chosen people is now being used for these Gentile Christians. Those who were not God's people are now God's chosen people through faith. But why are they God's chosen people? Why are they his chosen people? The word chosen in the New Testament is most often used to speak about God's elect who are chosen to inherit eternal life. That's how chosen is used in the New Testament. And Peter further defines really what is the doctrine of election. We are going to be thinking about the doctrine of election right here. right? So let that warm the coddles of your heart. Okay? Uh, we are going to be thinking about the doctrine of election. And he gives us three phrases in verse 2 to describe this glorious doctrine. 
this beautiful, beautiful doctrine. He gives us three things. He gives us the basis, the means, and the result of our election. So let's look at the first one, the basis of our election. Peter says that we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Already wading into the deep end in the introduction. Well done, Peter. When Peter uses the word foreknowledge right here, he isn't merely just speaking about God, knowing some information in advance about Christ and what he would do, or even about Christians and, and what they would do. Often in the scriptures, to know actually speaks about covenantal love. That's the idea uh, with this word foreknowledge right here, to set your love and affection on someone. In Genesis 18, verse 19, God speaks of his covenant with Abraham, and he says, for I have chosen, literally known in the text, right? For I have chosen him or known him. We also see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. So to be foreknown is to be foreloved. To be foreknown is to be foreloved by God. God's plan from eternity past was to set his sovereign, saving love on those who deserved eternal death. That's wonderful. Those who are foreknown are foreknown in and with Christ. Why? Because what do we learn in verse 20? If you skip down, chapter 1, verse 20. They are foreknown in and with Christ. Why? Because Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world and yet revealed in these last times. Peter sets the record straight. The true people of God are those who are chosen and foreknown by God. Not like that of Israel as a chosen nation, but in the ultimate spiritual sense, chosen in Christ. Friends, our identity as Christians isn't rooted in our family. It's not rooted in our ethnicity, our nation, our sexuality, or achievements, or our status in society. It is rooted in the sovereign initiative and plan of God to set his love on you. That's what it's rooted in. The world may hate you, but guess what? God foreloved you before the foundation of the world. This is the basis of our election. But how does that election actually get applied to us? That's the second thing that we see. That second phrase right there. The means of our election. Peter says that we are chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We're chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, the word sanctification is often used in two ways. The most common way to speak about sanctification, the doctrine of sanctification, is to speak about our progressive sanctification, meaning that process by which we become more like Christ. We become holy. We mature in Christ. It's that process of the Spirit's work within us. It's a cooperation with us in the Spirit. That's progressive sanctification. The other way that the New Testament often speaks about sanctification is positional sanctification, where the Spirit sets us apart as holy, positionally, before God as his own possession. That's positional sanctification. Now, we can see that Peter's referring to this kind of sanctification, right? positional sanctification, because of verse 3. Just look at the context 
Look down there at verse 3. He speaks right here of our new position as those whom God has given new birth into a living hope. Right? He is caused to be born again, literally right there. He has given them new birth. And so Peter right here is referring to our conversion in these verses. of talking about the spirit and the sprinkling of the blood. And so the way God's election is applied to us is through the means of the Holy Spirit setting us apart for God as his possession. That's the means of how that happens. But what does that result in? What does that result in? It's the third thing that we see, the result of our election. Peter gives us the final phrase. We are chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. When we first read that phrase, it can be somewhat confusing. Let's be honest, right? To be obedient and to be sprinkled by the blood of Christ. What is obedience, right? Why does obedience come with being sprinkled with the blood of Christ in this way? It can be quite confusing. But the background, I think, is really helpful for getting clarity. And the background of, of, of this phrase, sprinkling with the blood, comes to us from Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 to 8, where Israel enters into a covenant relationship with God, and they promise to obey all of God's commands, right? We know exactly how that went, not swimmingly. But they propose, they promise, they're going to obey all of God's commands, and then in response, what does Moses do? But he sprinkles the people with sacrificial blood to symbolize God's acceptance of them as his people. They have entered into covenant with God. He's just given them his covenant on Mount Sinai. They've pledged. We're entering into it. He sprinkles them with the blood as symbol of a symbol of God's acceptance of them. But now, though, the way that Peter is using it here, we enter into a covenant relationship with God as we pledge our obedience to him through initial faith in Christ. And then we are sealed and cleansed and forgiven, not by the blood of bulls and goats from that of Exodus, but instead we are sealed and cleansed and we are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter gets at in chapter 1. And so in this verse, Peter is describing really our conversion, that moment where God brings us to saving faith in Christ, that all three persons of the Trinity are active in our salvation. The Father ordains our salvation. The Son accomplishes this salvation. The Spirit applies this salvation. And how do we respond? We respond in faith to this work of God. And so, friend, if you've not entered into a relationship with God, you can do so today. Outside of a relationship with God in Christ, we are dead in our sin, and we are condemned to an eternal exile from God. But you can enter into a relationship with God by faith in Christ, whose blood on that cross cleanses you from your sin and actually seals your eternity with God forever. So, friend, you may run after the acceptance of the world, but know that that will only result in your eternal rejection. By turning from your sin and trusting in Christ, you might be rejected by this world, but you will be eternally accepted by the one who created this world. That's what you need, a right standing before God that will only come through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So what will it be? 
an identity that this world gives to you or is trying to be erected by something that you invent or you create that's only going to be demolished in the end? Or one that is etched in eternity that can never be taken away from you? What will it be for you? Brothers, I hope, brothers and sisters, I hope you see how practical the doctrine of election is. You need to see how practical that this doctrine is for your life. We may look at this as a topic just for theological debate, right? We may look at it as, oh, that's like the dusty book that just needs to stay on the bookshelf, right? Somewhat confusing, often controversial from a worldly standpoint. But God means for this doctrine to be highly practical for your life. Think about this. Why would Peter intro his letter of encouragement to persevere in the faith with the doctrine of election? Why would he do that? Why does Paul do that in Ephesians? Why do they do that? How does election encourage us to stand in the grace of God when things get difficult? The whole purpose for why Peter is writing his letter, chapter 5, verse 12. Why does he intro this way? Consider this. When God has established your status and identity in eternity, then there is no amount of suffering or persecution that you, can, that you will endure that will undo that. No amount of it. The doctrine of election comforts you because though, though the world will utterly reject you, God has accepted you in Christ. It comforts you to know that God foreloved you as you face the harsh circumstances of this world. Knowing that you're loved by God gives you confidence to keep witnessing when people don't love you in return, who don't love what you have to say. It gives you confidence to keep pursuing a life of holiness even when you fall because you know the one who loved you before the foundation of the world called you to be his ambassador. Friends, there's a reason that Peter began his letter this way. He knew hard days were coming and that they were already here. And what better way to comfort God's people than to instill confidence in them with the doctrine of election? So Christian, who are you before God? You are chosen. That's who you are. You are God's child. And you are chosen. Because you are chosen by God out of the world, though, you live as an exile in the world. It's the second thing that we see right here with our identity, who we are in the world. Not only are we chosen, but we're exiles. Peter's writing to those, he says right there, are living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now that word for dispersed or diaspora was the common word that was used to speak of the Jews that were scattered in foreign lands after their exile in Babylon in 586 B.C. But what Peter is doing right here is that he's actually using that term to speak about all of God's chosen people who are scattered throughout the world. Not just Jewish Christians, though it includes them, but also Gentile Christians. And interestingly, each of the places that Peter actually names are regions throughout Asia Minor. These Gentile Christians aren't scattered throughout places that they haven't known. These are, these are places that they actually grew up. 
And yet he says they're scattered exiles. <laughs> Effectively living in a foreign land. He calls them exiles. He calls them sojourners and strangers in these places that they already know so well. So why is Peter using this in a strange way? He uses this in a different way than we would expect, right? They're not exiles in a literal sense, like a refugee fleeing their homeland. They're exiles spiritually because God chose them out of the world for himself. He's given them a heavenly citizenship, a new identity, a new heart with new loves and a new way of living. This world is no longer their home because God has called them to himself. And brothers and sisters, this status as chosen exiles isn't just for Christians in the first century. It's for Christians in every single age, no matter where you live. This is our identity that reshapes how we live in a secular society, which is the whole thing that Peter's going to go on about over this whole semester whenever we consider the rest of the book. He's going to get into all of that, of what that means for us. So over the past few decades in America, Christians have enjoyed some level of cultural clout. But now what's happened is that that umbrella is in effect been somewhat removed. Secular society no longer respects Christians but thinks their views are often dangerous in large part. If you declare that Jesus is the only way to God or that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, that's probably not going to get you a lot of respect today. It's going to get you a lot of flack within the culture. And so maybe with our cultural climate, you don't really feel at home anymore in America. Friends, Peter wants to reorient you to your identity in Christ. You're a pilgrim in a foreign land, in exile, who should never truly feel right at home in this present evil age. It is normal for Christians to feel out of place because it's been this way all along. It's been this way all along. Nothing has changed. Whether it was first century Asia Meyer or 21st century America, Christians are strangers in a foreign land that live and long for a heavenly home in New Jerusalem, which Christ will usher in whenever he returns. That's what we long for. We shouldn't expect to be a moral majority because we're meant to live as a distinct countercultural minority, which is exactly what Peter, Peter teaches us to do in this letter. So, brothers and sisters, have you gotten too comfortable in this earthly city of man? It is not saying that you don't love your country or that you're patriotic. That's not what this is saying. But it's reorienting you to where your true home is in this earthly life. Have you gotten too comfortable in this earthly city of man? Have you lost sight of your heavenly calling that God has given to us as chosen exiles, whether we gain the respect of the culture or we don't, as we're kind of entering into? Part of what Peter is doing in this intro is reminding these Christians how their circumstances map, really, onto the life and sufferings of Jesus Christ. He uses the same language to speak of us as he does of Jesus. Look at how he does this. This is phenomenal. We've already read in chapter 1, verse 20, that he was foreknown, that is, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And then in chapter 2, 
verse 4, we read that Jesus was also chosen and honored by God. Not only was he God's elect, he was also an exile who was rejected by people. Chapter 2, verse 4 says that he was rejected by men, that he was a rock of stumbling and offense to those who rejected him. In chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus' own people did not receive him. His family opposed him. Jesus himself said, Foxes and birds have more of a home in this life than I do. Friends, Jesus is God's chosen exile. He knows what that identity means to the fullest extent as the one who was exiled on that cross, bearing the wrath of God for our sin so that we might have that redemption applied to us through his blood. When we sign up to follow Jesus, we join him in exile. That's what we do. And when we do, we not only sign up to share in his sufferings, but you also sign up to share in his glory. As it's been said, in a world of seemingly unending shame, opposition, struggle, weakness, affliction, and persecution, the certainty of future, hope, of future glory is the unstoppable heartbeat of our enduring hope. So friends, do you see how the gospel actually redirects our hope in a world that is not our home? Do you see that? As Christians lose their status and their position of power and influence within the world, we must remember that our identity is in Christ. And that identity is not manufactured by what we desire in the moment. It's not cultivated or invented by us. We cannot go out and achieve that status because it's been given to us, praise God, by God himself. And as we do, we need not forget that as we face those trials, God is actually giving, given us other pilgrims along the way who are traveling with us. There are other exiles in this room who are journeying to the celestial city, that heavenly Jerusalem, with you. And so Peter is not just writing to individuals kind of just scattered throughout Asia Minor. This is a circular letter from Pontus to Bithynia, right? This is a circular letter going around to these churches that are enduring hostility from the world. We're not alone. We belong to a church made up of other citizens of heaven. And in this community, we have the opportunity to give one another a foretaste of the heavenly Jerusalem. We are an outpost in a world of, as Christ's heavenly kingdom. And so as his kingdom people, we want to build a community that is going to stir up our faith, that is going to redirect our hope when we are de dejected, that's going to encourage us in love when we feel like our love is running cold for the rest of the world, though that love needs to burn hot for the world as those who are not of the world but are actually sent into the world, the very thing that Jesus prayed in John 17. So friends, the church will outlast every single empire that ever comes up and pops up throughout the history of man. So dig into the community of the church to help you on your journey to that heavenly home. 
It's no wonder that Peter concludes this greeting with a blessing of grace and peace being multiplied to them. (laughs) They're going to need a whole lot of God's grace and peace to sustain the fiery trials that Peter talks about throughout this letter. But praise God that you're not alone in the midst of that. We have one another to help us persevere to the very end. I want to conclude this sermon by considering a letter written by a man named Diognetus just about 100 years after the death of Christ. Fascinating letter. He says this about Christians. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. I hope and pray that other people would be able to say that about us a hundred years from now. Not only for a hundred years after Christ, but to be able to speak of us like that today. May that be true of us. Let's pray.